Well, when I was young, in 1983, my family took a trip to Colorado, and uh, as part of that trip, we took a train up to the top of Pikes Peak. Uh, Pikes Peak is a mountain in the Rockies that is more than 14,000 feet in elevation at its highest point, one of the top 20 highest peaks in the Rocky Mountain Range. And uh, so we got on this little train, and my younger brother, David, was about four years old at the time, and about halfway up the mountain, he passed out. Um, And so he just stopped really moving and stopped kind of being animated, and my dad took a couple of photos. Uh, This is David. He is not taking a nap. He is unconscious. He could not be awakened because as the air thinned out, David was susceptible to altitude sickness and just passed out. I asked my dad if he had any pictures of this event, and he said that he did. And in his words, he said, David went cold and as limp as a fish. And uh, I said, was anybody concerned that, you know, that he might die or something like that? Because that seems concerning. And dad said, yes, but of course, this was a long time ago, and for whatever reason, it wasn't like there were paramedics all up on the mountain, and we had been kind of committed to be up there for the hour that we were up there at the top of this peak. So he said, I was worried, but we just kind of went along. But but the real interesting interesting moment about this was then he said, but I really had to get a photo of you kids at the top of the mountain. So he, he forced David to wake up momentarily to take this photo of the three of us. I don't know how well you can see his face from where you're sitting, but he looks like he would rather be doing anything else than sitting on that mountain. And my older brother on the right, he looks like what in the world has happened. Now, now remember, this is before you could see the photo, before you got home. So I imagine dad printed this off and I'm the only one smiling, right? Like this is the most fun thing in the world. And David looks like, I hate this whole experience. Uh, Now, what happened was he ended up being fine. After this photo, he passed out again. And uh, on the way back down the mountain at the exact same elevation where he first passed out, he woke up again and became lively and was fine. No brain damage, no death, nothing along those lines. And he's fine to this day. Now, why do I share this story with you? The reason I share this story is to illustrate a really simple principle, and it is this. Without air, you cannot move, right? Without uh, breath in your lungs, you are not going to be animated. And in fact, if you go for a long enough period of time without breath in your lungs, without sufficient air, you'll die, right? All of us know that on a physical level. You have to have air to live. Biblically, that is true on a spiritual level also. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning, the third member of the Trinity. And as we talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, the reason I bring up this concept of breath or air is because biblically, the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity who animates the world and enlivens God's people with his breath, right? In fact, uh, the word spirit itself in the Bible means wind or breath 
or heir. There's a couple of words biblically. The Hebrew word is this word ruach, right? It even sounds like someone is breathing ruach right at the end. And then the Greek word is pneuma, from which we get pneumatic, right? So if you think about a pneumatic drill or a pneumatic tool, it operates by air. That's what we mean when we say pneumatic. So when we use the word spirit, we are talking about wind or breath. And so biblically, the analogy here is that the spirit of God, and in fact, the spirit of man is what keeps you alive. So that as we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is that member of the Trinity, that member of the Godhead who animates and brings life to God's creation and God's people. Without him, we die. All right, if the Spirit is not active and present in the world, the world will cease to live. If the Spirit is not present in us, We will die. We will die eventually physically, and we will die eternally. We will experience eternal separation from God. So as you look throughout the Bible, let me show you just a couple of illustrations where we see the word spirit uh, used to talk about physical and spiritual life. All right, first of all, as you look at uh, the book of Genesis, when God says the flood is coming, I am about to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under the sky all the living creatures that have the breath, the ruach, the spirit of life in them. Everything that is on the earth will die. When the breath leaves your body, the spirit goes away and you're dead. In the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, We notice that the Holy Spirit comes with a sound like a violent, rushing wind. Look at Acts chapter 2. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a violent wind blowing came from heaven. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. See, so when the Spirit comes, what does He do? He brings life to the church. And the men and women in the church begin to exude the life that comes from God. So they pray and they preach the gospel and they share their possessions and they speak in other tongues. And the movement of God among them through the power of the Spirit brings life. That's what the Spirit of God does among God's people. So as we look at the Holy Spirit this morning, there are really two principles that I want us to take away from the morning when we think about the Holy Spirit. The first one is simply that the Holy Spirit is God. All right, the Holy Spirit is God. We're going to talk about how the Scripture defines the person of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is critical to say when we talk about God, we mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Next week, Brian Fisher is going to preach on the subject of the Trinity. And he will go into more detail about the triune God. But when we talk this morning about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about a personal member of the Godhead, right? He's not impersonal. He is not a force, right? So the Holy Spirit is God. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit gives life. That's what he does. Where the Spirit is, there is life. Where the Spirit is absent, 
there is death. John chapter 6, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who brings life. Now, I think as we look at the Spirit, I want to say uh, there's a couple of errors as a church that we could make when we begin to think about the Holy Spirit. All right, one error is that uh, we, in a sense, overemphasize the activity of the Holy Spirit to the extent that we begin to expect dramatic occurrences to happen all the time as a result of the Spirit's work. So instead of looking for the day-to-day movement of the Spirit of God amongst His people, we always look for dramatic miracles and signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and healings and these types of major events that we do see in the Scripture and that God does perform. But the danger is we begin to look at those as normative when in fact the scripture says one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to help us understand the word of God and then to exhibit the character of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in Galatians chapter 5, that the Spirit's primary role in the church is actually not the dramatic, but the ordinary life of Christians. Right, that's one error we can make. The second error we can make, though, is to underemphasize the work of the Spirit because we are afraid of becoming those who are out of control or chaotic. We are afraid because, as Jesus said, the, the wind blows where it wishes, right? You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. And he says that's how it is with those who are born of the Spirit. And so we say, I don't want to be a person that doesn't know where I go and where I come from and what God is doing. I want to have things under control. And so we underemphasize the work of the Spirit, and in the process, we quench the Spirit's work in and among God's people. And so these are two extremes that I think as a church we risk falling into if we don't have a biblical understanding of the Spirit. And what we'll see as we look at the Spirit this morning, we're going to talk about who He is, and then we're going to say our responsibility as men and women of faith is to be filled with the Spirit of God so that the character of Jesus Christ is evident in our lives and in our church so that we are people full of thanksgiving and praise and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and the fruit of the Spirit and kindness toward one another. And these are supernatural results of the Spirit's work among us. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we talk about the Holy Spirit. And as I said, I want to begin with this concept that the Spirit uh, is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, When we talk about the Holy Spirit as God, I think the fundamental misunderstanding uh, that we have to overcome is that the Spirit is impersonal, that He's just kind of like a life force, like electricity that sort of powers the world, but He's not actually a personal member of the Trinity. Right? The greatest proponent of the idea that the Spirit or that God is impersonal, uh, perhaps culturally the most famous proponent of that idea, uh, is this guy right here. Uh, some of you will recognize him. This is Yoda. Uh, Yoda, he looks wise, right? He is so old 
he has literally turned green like moldy cheese. Okay, he's 900 and something years old. Uh, he is in Star Wars and he looks wise and he says things that sound wise, partly because his grammar is always backwards, right? So you think uh, anybody who talks like that must be wise. And here's his idea of God. It's called the force for my ally is the force and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it. Now notice, it's not that the force creates life, like we're saying the Spirit of God does, but life creates the force, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. You must feel the force around you, here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes. Mm, Right? So deep but so deeply wrong. Because biblically, what we see about the Spirit is the Spirit is a he, not an it. Uh, This is is fascinating to me. In John chapter 16, when Jesus talks about the Spirit, listen to how he talks about the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, the reason this is so remarkable is because in the Greek language, there are three genders that a noun could be. It could be masculine, could be feminine, or it could be neuter. The word spirit is actually a neuter noun, meaning it is neither masculine nor feminine. But what Jesus does is when he talks about the Holy Spirit, although it's a neuter noun, he uses a masculine pronoun to refer to the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus does something here that is technically incorrect grammatically, but is correct theologically. He says the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third member of the Trinity. And what is his role? He will guide you into all the truth, right? We don't talk about impersonal forces using he, right? When you put batteries into your kid's remote control car, you don't say, I'm going to put him in there. Oh, dropped him, right? If you start talking like that, people will think you're crazy. We don't do that. But Jesus referred to the spirit as a he because the spirit is a person. He shares the mind of God. He knows the truth of God. He carries all the authority of God. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit as God, what we recognize is that the essence of God resides in the person of the Holy Spirit. So he possesses God's authority. In Acts chapter 5, there's this story about Ananias and Sapphira, two early Christians who sold a piece of land and they brought some of the money and they donated it to the church, but they lied. They lied about how much money they got for the land and they said what they were giving was all the money when in fact they were keeping back a portion of it. And so when they came before Peter and the apostles to donate this land, the Spirit revealed to Peter that Ananias and Sapphira were lying. And in fact, Ananias and Sapphira died as a result of their sin. Right? But what's significant about this passage is that in Acts chapter 5, Peter says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God himself because the Holy Spirit carries the authority and the essence of God. He is not an impersonal force. He is not the God of Yoda. He is God in spirit. So he carries the authority of God. The Holy Spirit also knows God's mind. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 to 11. It says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So here's the analogy that Paul is using here. He says, look, nobody knows what you're thinking except for you, except your spirit. Uh, If you are married, you understand this because there are no doubt times you would like to know what your spouse is thinking, but you don't, right? Uh, Some of you men perhaps have uh, been driving in the car and you can tell that your wife is upset and you say, what is wrong? And she says, nothing. And you say, no, I know something, something is wrong. And she says, nothing. And you begin to scan your mind, don't you? What could she be thinking? Did I leave a towel on the floor? Is it her birthday? Right? You don't know. You can't figure out what is going on. The only one who knows is her. The only one who knows your mind is the spirit of the one who is in you. God says, similarly, the spirit knows the mind of God. Why? Because the spirit is God. He possesses all the knowledge that God possesses. And in fact, Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 2 to say, and what does the Spirit do with that knowledge? You know what he does with that knowledge? He gives it to us. And that's what Jesus says, that one of the primary roles of the Spirit is to take the teaching of Jesus and the Word of God and hand it along and remind us of the things that Jesus said. He is omniscient because God is omniscient and the Spirit is God. So he possesses God's authority, he knows God's mind, and he shares God's name. Right, in the passage where Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All the way throughout the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit placed into these types of Trinitarian formulas. Right? So occasionally you may run into a person from another religion, whether it is the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, and they will make the case that the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Right? And that is true. The Bible never uses the word Trinity, but over and over and over again, the Bible talks about the Trinity. And it places Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. Right? So when, when Paul in Ephesians talks about the process of salvation, he talks about what the Father does, what the Son does, what the Holy Spirit does. When Jesus commanded his disciples to go and baptize, they baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because they share the name of Yahweh himself. Right? So the Spirit is God. And so we worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we never want to neglect or forget or minimize the Holy Spirit in our worship, in our understanding of the Scripture. 
Holy Spirit is God. And as we mentioned, in his role as the third member of the Godhead, what does he do? His primary role is this. He gives life. The Holy Spirit is the animating member of the Trinity. Uh, One of the most uh, powerful passages in the Scripture on the idea that the Holy Spirit gives life is found in the book of Ezekiel. Some of you will remember being kids, and in Sunday school, uh, you may have sung a song that went something like this. Ezekiel cried to him, dry bones, right? Ezekiel cried to him, dry bones, and then you'd go, the foot bone connected to the leg bone, right? And you'd sing that whole song, and now hear the word of the Lord. And it sounded like it came from the Bible, right? But if you were like me, I I was one of those kids that was always going, what are we talking about, right? Why are we singing about bones here, right? And we kind of would wonder, like, what in the world is this about? Uh, Ezekiel is kind of like the Leo Tolstoy of prophets. He writes this very long book, that nobody has read, okay, that we all like to talk about and sing about. So let me explain what the song is about. Uh, Ezekiel 37, God showed Ezekiel a vision of bones in a field. And God says, uh, Ezekiel, tell me, can these bones live again? And I love Ezekiel's response. He says, you know, right? That's literally what he says. He's like, God, You know the answer. I'm sure that's why you asked the question. And in fact, God responds and says, Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. Prophesy over the bones and prophesy that the breath, the wind, the spirit would enter into them. And so Ezekiel says, I prophesied over them and the spirit of God came into these bones and they grew flesh. And guess what happened? The leg bone connected to the knee bone, right? All the bones connected together and grew flesh And became alive. And God says to Ezekiel, those bones are the people of Israel. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my spirit to give life to my people again. Even though they're sinful. Even though they're idolatrous. I will give them life through the spirit who will come and cleanse them and restore them. Right? That's what we were singing about in Sunday school is the idea that the Spirit of God enlivens God's people. So that what we see in the book of Acts that we talked about earlier is the Spirit of God comes among God's people, and what does He do? He brings life. Those dead men and women are regenerated into new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives life. As you look through the Scripture, you see that The Holy Spirit gives life, in fact, to the world itself. That the Holy Spirit is active in creation, giving life. Look at Psalm 104. There we go. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. You send forth your spirit. They are created. And you renew the face of the ground. When the spirit goes forth, He brings life. In Genesis chapter 1, in fact, as God is creating the world, notice what it says, that the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so God begins to speak, let there be light, and He begins to proclaim 
creation into existence. And you know what happens? The Spirit begins to move, and He enlivens the world itself. So it is absolutely accurate to say if the Holy Spirit departs from God's world, God's world dies. When my son was born, he was unable at first to breathe. His lungs were not ready. I know there are others in the room that have had that experience. The child was born and you expect to hear that cry and to hear the breath begin to come out and we heard nothing. He could not draw a breath. And so they they came in and they quickly hooked him up to a respirator, right? It is something that breathed for him for a week in the hospital, pushed air into his lungs, expelled the carbon dioxide, pushed air and oxygen into his lungs so that he could breathe until he could breathe on his own. As you look at the scriptures, think of the Holy Spirit as the world's respirator. If you remove him, everything dies. He enlivens God's world. He is active in creation. And as God speaks, the Spirit goes forth and he makes life. Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the book, The Magician's Nephew, when the children are there with Aslan, they happen to find themselves at the creation of Narnia. And what you see is Aslan, this great lion who represents Jesus. He walks through Narnia and he sings a song, but then when he comes to the animals, what does Aslan do? He breathes on them and they come to life. And that was Lewis's representation of the Spirit of God creating life in God's creation. Right? So the Spirit gives life to the world. The Spirit also gives life to God's Word. The Spirit is the one who inspires the people of God to write the Scripture. Look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God's words go forth through the Spirit of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired. Notice that, that inspired, that has the idea of breath, of respiration, right? Uh, if you look at the Greek word here for inspired, it's interesting. It's the only place in the whole New Testament that this word exists. In fact, it's, it's the first time in all of Greek literature that you see this word. The word is theopneustos. And uh, most people think Paul made it up. That uh, Paul began to think, I need a word to describe the idea of God breathing the scriptures out. It's funny, earlier this week, uh, my son came to me and he said, Dad, is there such a thing as an inventorist? And I said, uh, do you mean inventor? He goes, no, inventorist. Is this a word? And I think he had put inventor and scientist together in his mind and created inventorist. And I said, uh, no, that's not a word. And he said, yes, it is, right? 
and I will be one, right? And, th- and then he went on, and I was like, okay, you, you go, right? Because he thought, I want a word that describes these concepts, and so I will take inventor and scientist, and, right? And Paul did the same thing. He says, I need a word that includes God and the Spirit breathing it out. So he takes the word for God, he takes the word for Spirit, and he goes, God breathed. That's the word of God. That the Spirit of God went out and spoke God's words to God's people. Now, this is really significant because when we think about the movement of the Holy Spirit among God's people, this is critical. One of his primary jobs is to teach us what God's Word says and to help us obey it. So what that means is that the Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever tell us to do something that contradicts the Scripture. The Holy Spirit will never tell us to do something that is not fully in keeping with the revealed Word of God. And in fact, the primary thing that Jesus says the Spirit will do is call to our minds all that Jesus taught so that in our daily spiritual life, that is one of the Spirit's primary goals is to give us wisdom to apply the Scripture And in fact, I have found in my life, in most cases, when I sense the Spirit's movement, it is really an indication in my heart and in my mind that I need to obey something that the Scripture already tells me to do. So, very recently, uh, we received a gift of uh, some money, and I was thanking the Lord for that because... uh, Boy, this is going to be helpful. It's going to help our family. It's going to help our kids. It's going to help our finances. And I was thanking the Lord. And I sensed in my heart and mind the Spirit saying, you need to give some of that money to God's work. And I thought, well, yeah, the Bible tells me already to do that. I just wasn't planning to do it, right? Until the Spirit reminded And most of the time, that's the role of the Spirit, is He brings life to God's Word, reminds us of what Jesus taught, and leads us and empowers us to obey, right? So He brings life to the world, He brings life to the Word, and then He brings life to God's people. As you look throughout the New Testament, the Spirit of God, again, is the animating member of the Trinity. Titus chapter 3 says he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What does regeneration mean? It means being born again. Regeneration is what Jesus describes to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he says you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, that's confusing. I was already born once. How can I be born again? And Jesus says, you are born of water. That is the washing, the cleansing of God's Spirit to take away your sin And born of the Spirit, the Spirit enters into all who have trusted in Jesus Christ and makes you, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. That what was old and dead is now new and alive. Some of you have no doubt watched the 
popular show right now called Fixer Upper, where Chip and Joanna Gaines go to these houses in Waco that are falling apart, that are old, that look terrible, homes that you think, if I walked in, I would walk right back out. And what do they do? They move in and they bring new life. They take out what is old, what is useless, and they restore. That's a picture of what the Spirit does to all who have trusted in Jesus as He moves in and He brings new life. He regenerates. All who want eternal life, all who want forgiveness of sin, all who want to be washed clean, can find all of those things when they trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, to restore us to a relationship with God. And then the Spirit moves in and He washes you clean and gives new life. That's regeneration. And so the Spirit brings life to God's people. He regenerates and then He gives spiritual gifts to God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different results, but the same God. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the analogy of a body. And he says, here's what happens for all who have been regenerated. Then the spirit moves among God's people and he gives different gifts. Some can teach, some serve, some are generous, some have wisdom and discernment, some can prophesy. And he goes through all of these gifts and he says, the spirit moves among God's people. And he uses the analogy of a body and he says, the body needs all the parts. So the hand can't look and say, "Uh, because I'm not a foot, I'm no longer needed, nor can the ear say to the eye, look, because I'm not an eye, I'm no longer needed, right? Your body doesn't have the opportunity. The parts of your body don't have the opportunity to say, you know, I, I want to go somewhere that won't make me be a foot. It's dirty and smelly work being a foot. I'll find someone that will let me be a hand, right? No, Paul says all of the gifts are needed in the body of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, with the divine wisdom of God, enlivens God's people by giving spiritual gifts to the church. So some serve, some lead, some teach, some give, and he goes through this list. All gifts are critical. Right? As Chris was talking about, even just during the announcement time, all of us are called to serve in the body of Christ with the gifts that we have been given because the Spirit of God has given us God's gifts. The Spirit also fills us with God's character. Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled 
with the Spirit. Now, this is an interesting illustration that Paul uses here. Uh, He'll go on and say, be filled with the Spirit. And he says, uh, speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts to the Lord and giving thanks. And then he'll talk about submitting to one another. That is that when we are filled with the Spirit, it affects all of our relationships. Uh, When you are full of something, you retain the character of that something that you're filled with, right? So we have expressions in the English language. Uh, For example, uh, he is full of hot air, right? If somebody is full of hot air, uh, we are saying that some sort of animating spirit has filled his mind and his words, and now he is spinning tall tales. He's full of hot air. If we say you are uh, full of spirits. What does that mean? You are controlled by the alcohol, right? So you can go down to specs, wine, and what do they call it? Spirits. It's another word for various alcoholic beverages, right? And if you drink enough of it, what will happen? You may find yourself inexplicably courageous, You may find yourself able to talk to people boldly that you otherwise would be afraid of. You may find yourself silly when you're normally reserved. You may find yourself angry and ready to fight when you are normally mild-mannered. And if somebody sees you in that state, they might say something like, that's not him, that's the alcohol, that's the spirit's that has filled his mind and his heart. So why does Paul say don't get drunk with wine? It's not because in and of itself wine is evil. It is because when you are drunk with it, you are full of the wine and not full of the Spirit of God. And so he says instead, be filled with the Spirit of God. And what does that result in? It results in the character of Jesus Christ So just as we might look at a drunk individual and say, that's the alcohol talking, we look at a spirit-filled individual and we say, there is Jesus Christ. That this individual is filled with the Spirit and displays the character of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. When the Spirit fills us as a church and as individuals, the character of Jesus Christ is displayed. And in fact, that's the primary role of the Spirit among God's people is to display in us the character of Jesus Christ so he shines the spotlight right back on Jesus. So that Paul will also say in the book of Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, that is, we have been given His life, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit regenerated us, gave us life, so we will walk with Him day after day, year after year, as He leads us to grow in the character of Jesus Christ. So as men and women who know Jesus... That is our calling, to be filled with the Spirit of God who gave us life through the power of the gospel so the world can see Jesus Christ. As we close, let me offer just a few thoughts about how we walk with the Spirit, how we keep in step 
with the Spirit. First of all, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, regeneration and new life begins when you trust that Jesus died in your place for your sin and rose again. And then what happens is God forgives our sin and the Spirit moves in and regenerates and gives us new life so we can have eternal life that begins right now, a restored relationship with God and the ability now to obey Him. We trust in Jesus Christ. We seek to know God's Word. We invest our time and our energy in knowing the Word because the Spirit has given us God's Word and speaks to us through God's Word. And we recognize that the primary way in which God speaks to His people is through the Word of God. So we read it and we memorize it, and we study it so it is in our hearts and our minds so the Spirit can speak to us about what God wants. We seek to know our gifts. We actually have resources at Grace to help you with that. Uh, We have uh, periodically some classes that we do. You can find information on the website about how to find out what are your gifts. But let me just encourage you, if you're not sure, honestly, the best way to know is just to jump in and begin serving in the body of Christ in a variety of ways and listen to the feedback people give and get a pulse on what am I passionate about? What has God gifted me for? Where do I seem to be making an impact? And move toward those areas and over time, the Lord will reveal to you those gifts that you have to contribute. And then lastly, pray God will fill you up with His Spirit, that on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, you will reflect the fruit of the Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ, to the praise of the Father, so that we are a people who represent the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. We praise you that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to be indwelt by your spirit and filled by your spirit to do your will, to know what you would have us to say, to know what you would have us to think, to know where you would have us to go and how we can obey your word. I pray we would submit our hearts to him. I pray that we would find enough quiet moments in our days and our weeks to listen to his voice. Father, help us to be men and women who represent the character of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.